Well, I'm delighted to continue our weekly scripture reading through Philippians. Today we'll be reading Philippians chapter 3. We got a new friend and brother uh, in our midst, James, down here on the front row. And uh, I was talking to him yesterday. And I uh, said, so we're going uh, to start getting live in here during worship, because I know he really brings it. And uh, I guess my thing is, is I just want us to sing like we believe this stuff. Amen. Right? Amen. Father, you are all we need. I mean, you know, what, what is that? I think Jesus wants us to sing like we believe this stuff. Amen? He who has been forgiven much, what? Loves much. And he who loves much, worships much. Amen? All right. Well, get here in my Bible. Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We have come here today to give you the honor that you deserve, that you are so very worthy of. Lord, it's not much that we have to offer, but you do receive it with joy. We're told, Father, that you rejoice over us. That's an amazing thought, to think that we were once enemies, but we have now been reconciled to you through Jesus Christ, and you have given us the right to be called children of God. Oh, what a glorious gift of grace it is, Father. We receive it gladly and we rejoice readily, Lord. We have come here today to pour our hearts out, our affection, our devotion. We have come here to learn of you, God, to humble ourselves before your word. And so, Father, we just confess again that we need you, God. Every day, every hour, we need you. And so we've come expectantly today to receive from your word, God, to be encouraged through fellowship. Father, I pray that you would receive much honor and glory in our gathering today. This is your day. This is the Lord's day. I pray for our brothers and sisters in Napa that are celebrating your faithfulness even now, who are worshiping you. As the gospel is being preached, God, I pray that your spirit would move in power and that many would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, even in this very hour. I pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering greatly on account of their testimony. We are blessed, Lord, to have the freedoms that we have, and much of the world does not have that, God. And so thank you that you're faithful, you're with them, God. You are sustaining and strengthening our brothers and sisters. And I pray that your kingdom would come, Lord. I pray that your church would grow. I pray, God, that you would be worshipped in every place because you're worthy You deserve to be worshipped in every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And Father, we look to the day when we will gather together in one, as one, in Christ, giving you perfect praise, perfect worship. Thank you, Father, that we get a little taste of that even here and now. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Allow me to pray for our time uh, yet again. Father, we love you. And we're so grateful now to be able to turn our attention to the book of James. What a glorious book it is, Father. All of the scriptures are uh, just powerful, Lord, living, sufficient, able to meet our deepest needs and equip us, Father, for every need in our service to you and to one another to live a holy life that pleases you. And so I pray that uh, we would be blessed even now as we look to the scriptures that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that you would open our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful things from your word and that God you would help me Lord to speak with clarity with love with conviction and that you would bless your people today as they have in faith come to receive from you God so would you reward that in Jesus name amen all right so the book of James I won't do a lot by way of introduction. I think we're kind of beyond that now, but we know this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. 
This is one of the earliest epistles written, so it's not that long after Jesus had died and rose and ascended into heaven. And it's extremely practical, extremely practical. It would appear at this point that Christianity really had not gone outside of the Jews yet. It was initially right there in Jerusalem and Israel, and it was very much a Jewish religion, and really Rome saw it as just a subset of Judaism, and so they really didn't get a lot of persecution at that time, not even a lot of notoriety. And so James tells us that he's writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, the Jews that had been dispersed and had gone out all over the known world. So it's a general letter written by James to Jewish believers, but obviously believers as a whole. And as I said, it's one of the most practical books in the New Testament. I know people love this book. It was one of the first books for me that really lit the fire in my heart to learn God's Word and to meditate and memorize it. And I set out and I memorized chapter 1. That was as far as I made it. But it's a great book to memorize, and it's, uh, it's just good. It's been a blessing to be in it. And as you may recall, chapter 1, James spends quite a bit of time talking about us, talking about how we navigate trials, when trials come, because they absolutely will and do. And if you've been a Christian for five minutes, you know this. And he talked about seeking wisdom in the midst of the trials. He talked about when we're humbled in our trials, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And so we should rejoice even in that recognizing a distinction between trials and temptations and that God does bring us into and through trials for our own good, but He does not tempt us. He does not tempt us to sin. God cannot be tempted, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. But we are promised that if we withstand, if we withstand the temptation and the trial, we will receive a crown of life, which the Lord will give to those who love Him. And then as we get towards the end of chapter 1, James begins to take it from how we think about ourselves in light of trials and temptations, and he starts to talk about how do we care for others who are experiencing trials and temptations. So a good part of chapter 1 is really just us, particularly personally with, with the Lord, how do we navigate things, but he begins to turn our attention to how do we care for other people? How do we serve and how do we bless other people? Such that he says in the very end of chapter 1 that true religion, true spirituality, true Christ-likeness is manifested in serving others, caring for orphans and widows. And so it's not all about me, it's not all about my holiness necessarily, it's not all about my sanctification, it's not all about my theology. A lot of people just live right in that bubble. It's not all about my own personal warfare and spiritual attacks. It's about others, taking what we have received and dispersing it to others, caring for others, particularly those who cannot care for themselves and those who can't repay us for caring for them. The Bible talks about that, that it's good to do f good things for people who cannot return the favor, because that lets us know that there's no agenda there. Amen? And that really pleases the Lord Jesus. And then as we moved into chapter 2, I was not here last week, but Pastor Dan began to talk about the sin of partiality. 
And that's what James addresses in the first passage there. Again, this is dealing with other people. If we are in the midst of the Lord's gathering and two people come in, he kind of gives us a little, a little uh, lesson here. Um, he says, if a rich man comes in and a poor man comes in, don't give special treatment to the rich man, the guy that's decked out and wearing fine jewelry. Don't say, hey, brother, you know, come up here and sit in the best seat. Whereas you might have someone who comes in and they are not doing well. They're hurting. They're busted up, as we might say. And uh, their clothes is all tattered and torn. And we say, you know what? We've got a special place, a special place for you. It's right in the back corner over there, right? No, we don't, we don't do that, okay? That's not how we treat others. Why? Because the Lord does not treat us that way. Our God is no respecter of persons. He is not partial. And the fact is, we're all on a, a level playing field before God. Amen? And so we all are in need of His mercy. We are all spiritually bankrupt and destitute apart from God's goodness and grace. So how then can we turn around as the people of God and show partiality? How can we withhold kindness and love and care from some and then give it to others? May it never be. And so, again, James is dealing with the issue of how do we serve and care for others as those who have received so generously and graciously from our God. And that now brings us to verse 14 in chapter 2. Verse 14 in chapter 2. And this is a, a very, very classic text of Scripture. It is the passage dealing with the balance between faith and works. Faith and works. And we'll talk quite, about, quite a bit about that as we go. But if you are even vaguely familiar with your Bible, then you are probably familiar with this text. And you've probably heard people talk about this passage. Faith without works is what? dead. Faith without works is dead. So I titled this message, You're Probably Not Even Saved. I'm just kidding. That fell flat. Okay. No, seriously. I titled it, Is Your Faith Working? Is Your Faith Working? Is Your Faith Working? And that's a good way to, to phrase it, and that's what it boils down to. Is our faith demonstrating something are we changed because of our faith? I don't want to get ahead of myself, so let's just look at verse 14 together. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So this kind of sets us up here, and this is a very controversial passage, I will add, and it has been a source of much argument throughout the centuries, and I want to get into that just a little bit. What we're dealing with here is something called the doctrine of justification. Justification. If you are a Christian, a believer, a follower of Jesus, you need to understand this. This is extremely crucial. Justification, that is being declared righteous. That is God saying to you, you are right. You are righteous. You are holy. You are clean. You are pure. You are guiltless. You are innocent in my sight. Now, it's not because we deserve it. 
It's not because it's even true in and of itself regarding our own character and conduct. It's because we're in Christ. It's because by the Holy Spirit, Christ dwells within us. We are united to Him, and His perfections and His achievements have been accredited to us. That's a crucial word, accredited. It's a word you need to know. It's an accounting term. It's, it's been given to us, Im- imputed, if you will, and talk about that just a little bit, but that's justification. That's a biblical definition for justification, but a lot of Christians don't see it that way. They don't see it as something that is simply gifted to us. It's something that we have to essentially attain to. We have to attain to it. It's not simply faith and believing. It's something that we have to work our way towards. And this really, this whole issue really culminated back in the 1500s in something called the Protestant Reformation. So I want to connect us to our brothers and sisters historically here. Please do not glaze over on me here because, look, our church history should go further back than Billy Graham. You know, a lot of people, we, okay, the book of Acts, the Roman Catholic Church, Billy Graham, and, and I'm here now somehow. And that should not be. May that not be. We have such a rich heritage. It's incredible what God has done through our brothers and sisters, generation after generation. And we can be so deeply encouraged through church history. And so I want us to be connected to that. We have a heritage. We have a heritage. And so you had the Roman Catholic Church the Roman Catholic Church, and what they believe still to this day is in something, um, it's, a, it's not imputed. What is it, Dan? Infused righteousness. Thank you. And so the idea there is that we are not justified simply by faith, but we are infused with righteousness to the extent that we can now live a life that hopefully can attain to glory that can attain to us one day being saved fully in God's presence and glory. But there are many things that we can do in this life to knock ourselves off the path. Off the path. So there's venial sins, there's mortal sins. And so essentially when a child is born, they are baptized as an infant and that counteracts the original sin of Adam and Eve, the corruption of the fall. And then from that point forward, you have to observe and practice different acts of penance and different, um, different not ordinances, but um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sacraments. Thank you, Dan. I'm glad you're here. See, he is, dude, he is like a pro in this area. This is his wheelhouse. So I'm glad you're in here with me today, brother. Um, yes, the sacraments. And, so that, and that's essentially the way it is. And there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee of heaven. When you die, you will most likely go to purgatory. That's pretty much a guarantee, which is a place of punishment to some degree. And you'll be there for who knows how long until you have finally atoned for your sins in this life. And then comes heaven. And that, that still is the, the prevailing doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that was set forth in the Council of Trent. Well, there was a, a Roman Catholic monk named Martin Luther. This guy is a champion of the faith. Now, he, he, was, he just 
rose to the top. I mean, he was able, he did all things that were expected, I mean, flawlessly, and it wasn't enough in his own mind. Even though he was doing all the things that he was supposed to do, highly educated, scholar of a guy, not converted, writing all kinds of commentary on books of the Bible, still didn't know the Lord, lived under this crushing weight of his sin guilt. And so he was doing all the things that he was supposed to be doing, yet he didn't love God, he hated God, he was scared of God, and he was underneath this crushing weight until, until he was confronted with the Word of God, namely in Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It says, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes." to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And his eyes were opened, and he understood that it wasn't by acts or works of righteousness, it was by faith. It was by believing, believing in Jesus Christ as the righteous one and clinging to Him and looking to His works and His achievements on our behalf. That was the way in which we would receive God's grace, God's glory, God's favor, and we would be justified. We would be justified by God that is declared innocent, and it would come by faith, believing, trusting, believing that God is, believing that we are who God says we are, believing that God really did what He said He did, for us, and that if we would turn our lives to Him in faith, we would receive all that He said that we would receive, and so we have. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and what is it to trust? It's simply, I've used this illustration so many times because I think it's very helpful. Most people trust in themselves. If you ask somebody, if you're going to die today, where would you go? A lot of times people say, well, I would go to heaven. And you say, why? They say, because I'm a pretty good person. You know, I might slip up here and there, but all in all, I'm pretty good. Well, that is them trusting themselves. They, are trust- they have faith, but the object of their faith is totally misplaced. It's themselves. And the Bible says that's all backwards. So we have to take our trust off of ourselves and say, no, I'm a, re- I'm a wretch. I, apart from Christ, I do not deserve God's favor or goodness. I have sinned against Him and His goodness. I have transgressed and rebelled against His goodness, and I justly deserve punishment and separation from God. But I trust in Jesus. I believe in Him who has saved. I believe in Him who died, who rose again from the grave, who lived a perfect life that I couldn't live, and whose righteousness has been imputed to me, accredited to me. So not infused, but imputed or accredited or gifted, as it were. And that is the doctrine of justification. Well, about that time, uh, as Luther was coming to this great realization and awakening, there was something going on in the church called the sale of indulgences. And the idea here was that the Pope has access to this special treasury of grace in heaven. And if you pay, if you pay then you could uh, receive some of this grace and knock some of the time off of your loved one's time in purgatory. 
so you could intercede on their behalf in this way. And there were all kinds of building projects, massive building projects going on. Those things had to be funded somehow, some way. And the saying was, for every coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And that was, that was the practice of indulgences. Well, Martin Luther was outraged by this. So he wrote out 95 arguments against this practice. That's amazing. 95. And then he went to the, the Wittenberg Castle in Germany and nailed it to the, to the door. And this was also, as God's providence, this was when the printing press had just been invented. So someone took it down and they printed it and mass distributed it everywhere. And then instantly he rose in popularity. But he, I mean, he might as well have been a dead man at that point because to go against Roman Catholic doctrine like that, you could die a very horrible and torturous death. But he took a stand. He took a stand. He would not back off. He would not recant. And he fought fiercely for the doctrine of justification by faith. And that is what is known as the Protestant Reformation. That was where the Protestant church began. The idea there is protesting, protesting the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And there were five key points, if you will, the solas, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, which we fully embrace and absolutely celebrate. And that is by sola, that, that means alone. So sola fide, which means faith alone. Sola gratia, which means grace alone. Sola Christus, which means Christ alone. Sola, um, don't say it, sola scriptura, which is the word of God alone. And then sola dea gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so that was the cry of the Reformation, the five solas. And so we absolutely love and celebrate sola fide. We are saved by faith alone, not by our works. We are not saved by our works. That's why we have to get this in our minds very clearly as we look at this passage in James. Now, Martin Luther struggled with the book of James. He really had a hard time with this passage because he read this passage and being, coming out of Roman Catholicism, being set free, uh, believing by faith in these realities and experiencing the love of God as he did, he felt like James had it wrong here. James was saying that faith is, is good and it's okay, but you really need works. And so he called this an epistle of straw. Just, you know, to say it's, it's fluffy, it's empty, there's no weight to it. Um, and, you know, I've had, some, I've had some people tell me that I've had, there's been some dispute as to whether that Martin Luther felt that strongly about the book, but generally that's, that's what we hear, and that's why. And so it's important for us to, to recognize these things. So justification by faith. So, verse 14 what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? All right. So he poses this question for us. Can that faith save him? If someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, can he really be saved? And so the idea here, look at verse 18 real quick. Verse 18, he says, Some will say, you have faith, and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So the issue here, this is not, this is not juxtaposing faith and works. That's not what's going on here. What it's essentially juxtaposing is saving faith and dead faith. It's important for us to recognize that. Amen? So we're not pitting works and faith against each other here. It's saving faith and dead faith. Got it? And so he tells us that there's a way in which we can know that we have saving faith. There is a way in which we can know that. And so verse 15 Go back to verse 15. It says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the idea here, let's reel it, all, let's reel it back in. If I lost you, let me, let's just you know, snap back with me here. This all boils down to legitimate faith is a faith that has feet. Legitimate saving faith is a faith that has action. If we are truly saved, if we really believe in Jesus and what He has done for us and have received His Holy Spirit and have been given a brand new heart, that's going to look a certain kind of way. Our actions will follow there will be an inward change and then an outward change that will accompany that. Now, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that it's just an outward change. And so that's the issue if it's all works. If your theology says that it's all based on works, just do more and do better, then that can, that can really damn someone to two extremes. Either despair because we just know, like Martin Luther, it's not enough, or pride because look at all of the great things I'm doing. God's got a winner on His team. <laughs> and neither those are both bad, okay? And so if it's all works, that can bring about legalism. Our relationship with God is purely contractual. If I do A, B, and C, then He owes me X, Y, and Z. And that's all bad. And so uh, having... Purely, uh, purely works-based relationship or uh, you know, religion, that's bad. But then it can be some people err on this side. I believe, so I can just do whatever I want to do. I'm saved. And you have people who maybe have been told, maybe in a moment they were at a church service and their emotions were really being tugged on. It was the, the right song, the right preacher, and they were told, just walk up this aisle and pray this prayer after me. And maybe they were promised a better life or a more purpose or a more meaningful life or maybe even a better job or, or who, who knows what. They were sold Jesus, essentially. And they said, I want some of that. And they prayed that prayer but they didn't really understand what they were signing up for. They didn't, really, they didn't really trust Christ savingly, and they weren't really born again, but they say, hey, I prayed a prayer. Yeah, I believe. Like We, can, we all can believe in something to, to a degree. Like we, we believe, I believe in a lot of things that I haven't necessarily seen or experienced myself, so it's not really a personal experience for me. That's the way it can be with Christianity. You can believe in a historical Jesus. 
Yeah, you can believe that the, the Bible is true, but it has no effect or bearing on your life. You haven't really been born again. You haven't really trusted savingly. But hey, I believe. And there's a lot of people like that, and they can just sin, 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 and they have no conviction. It does not grieve them whatsoever. And that's a, that's a, a scary, dangerous thing that you need to take note of. Where are you at in that regard? Do you grieve over your sin? Does your sin bother you? Do you confess your sin to God? Do you really fight the fights? That's what someone who has exercised true and saving faith in Jesus will do. The battle is real, amen? The battle rages on, and we keep fighting. So the idea here is that it should be a faith that produces works. It should be a faith that causes us to act. If someone does not have the works that accompanies it, if they don't act, then we have good reason to question whether they actually have faith. And so are we? Are we actually serving the Lord? Okay, After you've exercised faith in Jesus Christ, called upon His name, bowed the knee to His Lordship, been born again, as it were, John chapter 3, is there in you a fight for holiness? Is there in you a desire to worship the Lord? Is there in you a desire to get to know Him through His Word? Is there a desire within you to serve Him? Is there a desire within you to share Him with other people? Is there a desire within you to care for those around you who desperately need hope, encouragement, to be served, to be cared for? So those are the kinds of works that accompany saving faith. And there are many others, but just to put it in a, in a nutshell, so where are we at? Have we believed in Jesus to the extent that our lives are being changed and that there are works, things that we can point to and say, that's all God. God's doing that in my life. God's changed me. God's changed me. We need to be looking for these things, resting in what Christ has accomplished for us, resting in the finished works of Jesus Christ, but from that place serving God. I'm not serving God to get. I have gotten from God. I have received from God. And from that place, I can serve with great power and strength and love. Amen. I'm energized to serve and to, to obey, as it were. And so caring for others, James talks about this a lot. Is our Christianity having an effect on other people? Are we using our gifts and our talents and our resources to bless other people. We've got a lot of Lone Ranger Christians. We've got a lot of Holy Huddle Christians. They just want to be in their little group and never get outside of that. We've got a lot of Stealth Ninja Christians. They come in and out undetected. Uh, we've got a lot of Christians. It's just me getting more Bible knowledge. It's just me, uh, you know, just... It's, it's all just very... It's me, 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 me. I'm always on spiritual warfare. I'm always whatever. We've got to move beyond that, and we've got to care for others because that's what James says. You see other people who have needs, and you don't do anything about it. What's up with that? Now, that might be a little more difficult for us in this day and age where we live 
We tend to look at people who are struggling in our community, the homelessness issue, and we say, well, you know, they want to be in that situation, right? You'll, you hear people justify or come up with all kinds of reasons why they might feel like that's not a worthy thing to, to give. And there's some argument certainly to be, to, make, to be made in that regard because the reality is a lot of the folks around, uh, that are in that situation do want to be in that situation, and we know that. But you know what? There, we can't say there's no needs. I mean, there are needs everywhere, all around the world. There is so much devastation going on in the world around us. How are we making a difference? How are we taking this faith and letting it be a faith that has feet? How are we contributing to the needs of those who are hurting and lost? And, and Christians, let me tell you, don't get caught up in the, like the whole like refugees. God's heart breaks for refu- refugees. It does. Read read the Bible. Read the Bible. And I know that kind of stuff is highly politicized, and it's it's you know there's all kinds of heat around that. But look, God's heart is for the broken, the hurting, the destitute, the stranger, the widow, the orphan. Amen. And so there's got to be some some feet to our faith. And that's going to come through our hands. It's going to come through our pocketbooks. It's going to come through our prayers. But you know, there's needs right here. People have needs, but how are you going to know that if you don't get to know some people in here? If you don't know people, then how can you know needs? If you don't know people, how can your needs be made known? Using the gifts that God has given us, the spiritual gifts, you know that those only work in community? They're for the edification of the body of Christ. Now, how are you going to use those gifts if you're not in community? If you're not taking every opportunity afforded you to gather with the saints and to love God by loving His people? Is there feet to your faith? Is there an action that accompanies it? There has to be. There has to be. Verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one. And you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, I want to draw your attention back to verse 19. Even the demons believe. Did you know that the demons have good theology? I mean, you just look at the demons that encounter Jesus in the new they knew who he was they knew what he could do they pleaded with him not to and they were they were tormented over it they were absolutely said why have you have you come to torment us that's the kind of, they would shriek they would cry out and Jesus at times would have to make them be silent because they knew full well who he was so what's he getting at here a right theology is not enough 
A right understanding is not enough. You can have pristine theology, and believe me, I'm all about that, okay? I love doctrine. I love theology. I'm going to always encourage us to think deeply and be students of the Scriptures because that should inform our affections. It should go from here to here, and our hearts should be inflamed with love and gratitude as we understand more about this infinite God, amen? And that should then go from our heart to our hands, and it should affect the way that we live our lives and serve others around us. But for some people, it never goes from here to here. It goes right here. And so they got a head full of knowledge. they got a head full of good theology, but their heart is cold and their hands are useless, idle. And so he says, look, it's not enough. Even the demons believe, but that's not, it hasn't worked out very well for them, has it? Because they haven't surrendered. They haven't repented they haven't looked to Christ. They obviously still persist in their enmity against Christ and in their great satanic rebellion. And so we can have a head full of knowledge and still rebel against God in our hearts. And so we got to take this glorious truth and let it make its way to our hearts. And we have to let it make its way into our hands. And we have to be about good works. It's not enough to just show up. It's not enough to just show up. People will often say, I just need to be in my word more. That's what I need. I'm struggling. I'm not in a good way. I just need to be in my word more. And I get what, they, what they're saying, and that's great, but we got to do more than just get in the word. We need to take that word and do something with it. Amen? Amen? Amen. we got to take that word and do something with it. And so... Theology, as wonderful as it is, the study of God, systematic theology, biblical doctrine, it's, we've got to have more than just that. We have to have more than just that. We have to have works that accompany that, and they should. That should be what empowers that. Now he gives this illustration here. He says, do you want to see that uh, faith without works is useless? Now this is where the language gets real trippy. And this is where I could see Martin Luther probably was getting pretty twisted up as he was reading this and thinking, okay, hold on, James. And so he says, was Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active alongside his works, and faith was completed by his works. So Abraham, the father of faith, he's called in Genesis 15, 6, he was given this great promise by God. Now, he had been already given this promise years earlier. And God comes to him and reestablishes this promise that through him the nations of the earth was going to be blessed. His offspring would be innumerable. But he's an old man. He doesn't have any children. And God comes to him and says, I'm your exceedingly great reward. I'm your... your um, shield and exceedingly great reward. And he says, but I don't have any children, okay? I don't have anybody to pass on my, the inheritance to. And God reassured him, reaffirmed him in the promise that he was going to make good on what he had promised him all those years earlier. And it says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteous. Genesis 15, 6. So all the way back in Genesis, we're dealing with this biblical doctrine of justification, righteousness through faith. He believed in God. But he was also a man who acted on his belief. Now, he messed up at times. I love that. You know, I love that. The Bible is real, real people, real people like us. He wasn't perfect. 
He wavered in his faith at times, but the supreme test of his faith was on Mount Moriah when he was told to sacrifice his one and only son, the child of promise, his only true heir, Um, the heir that was the promise of God, I should say. He had Ishmael, but um, the son that he so longed for and had, and now God was asking him to give him away. And of course, this was all a picture of what God was going to do in Christ on that same hill, on that same mountain. And he was willing to do it. He was going to sacrifice his son. And as he was going to do it, he was stopped. He was stopped. And it was all a test of faith, and he passed. He passed beautifully, wonderfully. And so you see, he was a man who really believed God such that he was willing to do such an extreme thing to demonstrate that. And again, that's what ultimately James is getting at here. That's what James is getting at. It's, it, it wasn't, he believed God, yes, but man, he actually demonstrated that he believed. It was obvious through some of his actions that he really believed. Amen? Amen. Now, I had talked about Romans already, and I'll just, uh, you know, 1, 16 and 17, that was what really turned it around for, for Martin Luther, but it, it goes so much deeper even than that. In the next couple chapters, he talks about just the, the universal depravity of man. We are all sick. We are dead. We are separated from God in our sins outside of Christ, and that's a universal condition. But in chapter 3, verse 21, it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is Romans. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Okay, so it's by faith. Then you go into chapter 4, and Paul talks about Abraham. Verse 1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. See, that's just it. We can never boast before God about anything that we did. We brought absolutely nothing to the table. Do you know that? Do you believe that? I contributed nothing to my salvation but my sin. Point blank. And so I can boast about nothing but God and His goodness and His faithfulness and reaching down and saving me. And it's all through faith in Jesus Christ. It says in verse 3, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as his due. All right, so if we are working for something, you're going to find that you're going to end up owing in the end. You're going to owe. But if we trust in God by faith, then we receive the free gift of eternal life. In the end of chapter 4, it says, again, just kind of laying out the promise made to Abraham and his faith. Let's see. All right, verse uh, 23. It says, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised Him from the dead, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, 
who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our, what? Justification. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by what? By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's all through faith. It is all through faith. But that faith will work its way out, just like it did with Abraham. And then finally, verse 25, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So again, Rahab, the harlot. You may know the story. In Joshua, when they sent spies into the land to spy out the land before they were going to take it, somehow they connected with Rahab and she hid them because she knew. She knew what was coming. In fact, they all knew. And she had heard the stories about the God of Israel and the mighty feats that he had accomplished. And she said, spare me and my family when you come into the land. And she hid them. She, didn't, she did not tell the people that those spies were there. And what, were they, what did they tell her? Hang a scarlet cord in your window, and when we come in, we'll spare this house. And that was a picture of Christ. Amen? And so, again, she believed such that she risked her own life. And so, again, as James is trying to make crystal clear here, if we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ, that will look some kind of way. It will affect the way that we live. It will empower us to serve God and to walk in obedience and love. So I ask us again, how are we doing in this area? How are we doing in this area? By the Spirit of God and the grace of God, we can flourish. You can have victory over your sin. You can love others supernaturally. You can release the, the death vice grip off of your own possessions and resources and utilize those for the good of others, for the kingdom of God. You can get over your own shyness and insecurity and actually connect with other people in the body of Christ and outside the church such that you can be a blessing to other people. By the Spirit of God and the grace of God, you can walk out this faith that you have been called to. Amen? Amen. God doesn't just say, do this. He says, do this, and I'm going to give you the ability and the resources, and I'm going to reward you for it when it's all said and done. But how many of us are going to stand before God on that great day with tears in our eyes because we wish we would have done more? Because we wish we would have done more. My pastor in South Carolina used to say that. When it says he's going to wipe away every tear, he thinks it's going to be tears of, I wish I would have done more with the time that I had. You know, Let that not be the case for us. So, is your faith working? I hope so. It should. It can. It must. By the grace of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We give you glory and honor. Help us to be those who truly have feet to our faith, who really love and embrace and have been set free by the doctrine of justification, and it is from that place that we serve not to get your love, not to gain your love, not to appease a guilty conscience, 
But having a conscience that has been purified and cleansed from our former sins, having a heart of peace and joy because we have been justified through faith, having been reconciled to you, our Father, and having received your Holy Spirit who has been poured out into our hearts through faith, may we be those who take that faith and work it out, work out our faith with fear and trembling, as Paul said. And so, Father, help us, God. Help us, Lord. Thank you that we have all that we need in Christ Jesus for life and godliness. We praise you, and it's in that wonderful name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Assurance 
In Christ we've been brought near and in His strength and in His strength we'll labor His promises our hope Thus far His love has led us His love will lead us home Oh, how deep, how wide, how long Oh, how vast the love of Jesus Oh, how sure, how sweet, how strong Oh, how vast is love for us Oh, how deep, how wide, how long Oh, how vast the love of Jesus Oh, how sure, how sweet, how strong Oh, how vast is love for us Oh, how vast is love for us Oh, how vast is love for us His love for us Our Father who in heaven Give us hope, 
Give us faith, help us trust in your guidance from the depths of your grace you have richly provided. Thank you, thank you, Father, you are all we need. Father, you are all we need. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up your countenance and give you peace. May he go before you this week, pour out his love and his spirit upon you. And may you go forth in his glorious name. In Jesus' name, amen.